Keystone Corner had a wah. It had a, a way into the scene. It fulfilled a role and a need to present the music on an ongoing place. And we, we created a, a club that was a haven for angels and devils alike. And it was a home where all musicians and people who loved the music all felt at home. That's Todd Barkin, who found jazz early in his life and has immersed himself in it for four decades as a player, record producer, club manager, and one of its most passionate fans. From Jazz at Lincoln Center, this is Jazz Stories. I'm Steve Rath. I talked to Todd Barkin at his home, which, as you'll hear, has its own acoustic relationship with the nearby Metro North Railroad. I was exposed to a lot of people who loved jazz at Oberlin. And what was equally important to be a chance to go to Cleveland, even though we didn't have cars, you know, I somehow could get myself to Cleveland and, and, and spend time at Leo's Casino and hear John Coltrane live with Eric Dolphy and playing with Rassan Sadian. And I heard Wes Montgomery, the rare... A couple of the rare gigs that Wes Montgomery was with Train and all kinds of Horace Silver and all kinds of, you know, literally hundreds of other jazz artists. So when I got to San Francisco, I actually started as a musician, uh, not as a presenter. Barkin was a keyboard player looking for gigs for his band. He went to a club near the police station on Vallejo Street in San Francisco called the Keystone Corner. The club owner, complaining that jazz didn't sell seats, wouldn't give him a gig, but offered him the club. I said, I only got about $8,000. He says, we can make that work. We can make that work. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, come back here on Thursday. He said, and I'm going to just bring some cash and your checkbook and and come back on on Thursday. And if you want to bring somebody with you, even your lawyer, that's cool, but... I think we can work something out here. I need some immediate cash to open this club in Berkeley. This week I need it. The die is cast. i got to get this joint and get rid of this place. And he said, by the way, I'll, you, you, you know, you're going to be very tight here, but by the time you open the door, you're going to be flat broke. He said, so I'm giving you two free nights with Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders, and it'll be packed. And I've already paid them. There's makeup dates that they've already gotten paid for. You got it. So Jerry Garcia comes in the night we opened, we repainted it, we put murals on the wall, we did all this stuff, and it was very loud. And I said to myself, I had to go in another room to even think, I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to book jazz for the rest of the time this club opened, because I was flirting with the idea, well, I'll do blues and jazz and blues, you know, because I just got to take advantage of the local community here, it's so tremendously uh, fertile, it's such a fertile area, and... Uh, they did their gig, and we, we made a lot of money. Didn't have to pay the band. So everybody bought a beer, you know, and, and we were doing okay. It was a dollar for a beer, and, you know. we It was $3 to get in and a dollar for a beer, and, you know, we were happening. We get, you know, finishing this gig, and I was part of the music community even then. Before I opened Keystone Corner, I hung out a lot in, in San Francisco. So I hung out at the Both And, which was the jazz club at the time. And I even hung out at the very end days of um, the jazz workshop, which closed. And the El Matador, which was actually open at the time I opened Keystone Corner. So there was a real opportunity. Keystone Corner had its had a why. It had a a way into the scene it had a, it was it fulfilled a role and a need uh, to present the music on an ongoing place and we we created a, a club that was uh, a haven for uh, 
angels and devils alike. And it was a home where all musicians and, and people who loved the music all felt at home. The people who were the lifeblood of Keystone Corner, and I've alluded to a few of them, but they, 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 they bear repeated mentioning. Uh, Betty Carter was certainly one of them. She, she, was, she was one of the most successful singers who played there on a regular basis. But the people whose house that was, whose home, you know, the, who, who were the kind of the premier tenants of, of that house of swing that, that on Vallejo Street in North Beach in San Francisco were Dexter Gordon, he held sway there. Rasan, while he was still alive, which was, he played there from 72 to 75. Charles McPherson was a major, major player. Billy Higgins and Eddie Marshall were the house drummers. James Leary and Herbie Lewis were the home bassists. Uh, George Cables and Cedar Walton were primary keyboard artists uh, of the club, although many, many different... Ahmed Jamal played there on a very regular basis. Miles Davis played there on a very regular basis, up through the end of 1975 when he kind of went into eclipse until the early 80s. I was going to say, Miles has a reputation for, for, being, uh, for being gruff and for being, you know, all for himself and, and what's in it for me kind of stuff. But you're saying he wasn't really like that. Well, Miles Davis was a, a real sweetheart to people that he cared, loved and cared about, first of all. Uh, that, that could be documented with a lot of people. You could talk to Al Foster and countless other people about that. And so he was a much nicer person than, I mean, part of being gruff and part of being brusque with people uh, and, and, and his voice, which was a real, you know, was, it was a torn larynx problem that he had for quite a long time in his life. That was all part of the mystique that he carried with him. Uh, I spent the, the bulk of my time with Miles Davis listening to music. Billy Eckstein band with Gene Ammons and with Art Blakey and John Malachi and one of the greatest bebop bands, or the first great bebop band of Earl Hines. He listened to that. Fats Navarro was in that band. We listened to that band a lot, you know. And then one time I got to listen to that music with Art Blakey and Dexter. And Art Blakey knew every one of those recordings and every one of those charts by heart. And Art Blakey could hum along with every single one of those charts. That's what's not talked about with some of those musical giants like uh, Max Roach and Art Blakey and Miles and Dexter, was the passion and the all-consuming love they had for certain aspects of, of this music. Their, their passion, and in, in Miles in particular, was rather obsessive-compulsive like that. We might play a, a, a theme X by the Billy Eckstein band you know, five or six times. Listen to it over and over and over. Then the next track might be What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. And he would play along with the bass line, you know, of that song. We all take music for granted, but it is it is a very mystical, magical thing because it's it's these shared pulsations in, in scales and, and rhythms. And you can you can kind of approximate what they're all about with notes and staffs and chords and but the the vibrations that create great music versus not so great music, um, you know, it, it's you know a bona fide you know ninth wonder of the world. Uh, 
take care of music and the music will take care of you is just a, an affirmation of that fact. One of the, the greatest joys I have in music and in, in my musical career has been providing uh, employment for musicians, actually handing them, and now I hand them checks. I used to count out $20 bills. I must have counted out, you know, $15 million in $20 bills at one point in my life. But, you know, that's one of the abiding joys and most satisfying aspects of what I do because in the long run, you're helping people pay their rent too. And besides sharing this wonderful music with people, we used to feel Keystone Corner was a real hand-to-mouth operation, and uh, we were just always on the border, on the cusp of, of struggling for our existence. But it gave us a real, I think, a, a real validity too. At the same time, or in, in, um, a lack of corruption, also. So, uh, you know, if we paid the rent, you know, Dexter Gordon used to walk back in the office after a Saturday night, sold out three shows. The music was overwhelmingly gorgeous. Lines around the block. He said. Tadzi, I think we paid the light bill. And that's exactly how we felt all the time. If we paid the PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the rent, and paid the musicians on time, which we did, if we did all those things and made our payroll, we felt that was the greatest success we could do. So that's the most gratifying thing to me is paying musicians, and it's one of the greatest sources of satisfaction that I have in my work. How long did the Keystone Corner run? Keystone Corner ran from July 7th, uh, 1972 to July 11th, 1983. And what made you decide to close it up and to move to the next thing? The rent went up. We our lease expired in 1983 and the lease and they wanted to like quadruple our rent and I couldn't uh I couldn't really afford it, and I was just getting exasperated with that that aspect of it. And San Francisco is a is a is a smaller city. I mean, you know, I had spent uh, 17 years, but I came there in in 1967, and this was 1983, so I had been there for 16 years, and I felt a necessity to. Uh, you know, to kind of come back to New York at that point. I, I was feeling the gravitational pull of New York City. Uh, I drove back here in a 1981 Volvo, and I just tried to survive. I, I actually worked at booking the Lush Life down on uh, Bleecker Street, and I started getting into some uh, managing, you know, agentry work and, and managing work. And I worked on a lot. I mean, I kind of went back to my roots in terms of just scuffling. I, I worked as a, a proofreader for Mudge Rose, Alexander, and for Dunn, uh, Nixon's old law firm. I worked a night shift in the proofreading department from 11 to 7. So I was working three jobs, and I wound up uh, very soon uh, getting the job as the manager of the Boys Choir of Harlem. I started managing Jerry Gonzalez and the Ford Apache Band, Chico O'Farrell. But that went hand in glove with producing their recordings, too. So that was part of my ongoing work as both a manager agent and recording producer. 
I achieved a symbiosis of all those activities. It's called making a living <laughs> in the jazz world. And I was actually the president of a record company when I came to work at Jazz at Lincoln Center. So then I, I started to work there as an artistic administrator in 2001. And then in 2004, I became the programming director of Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola. That means I booked the acts. I construct the... Uh, artistic schedule, book the artist, and create the booking architecture, the programming architecture that is the year-long. It's, it entails booking and contracting and coordinating about 150 bands a year that play at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola. It's like putting together an entire mosaic puzzle because there are their schedules, our schedule, things that Winton likes to celebrate, you know, birthdays of the month, uh, there's a framework of the other concerts in the Rose Theater and the Allen Room and the House of Swing that Dizzy's is an integral part of. So you've got to put all those elements together in a massive, multi-dimensional mosaic of cultural presentation. That's what booking is all about. When he's not booking or hosting, Todd Barkin has been producing artists ranging from vocalist Freddie Cole to Catherine Russell and from the Ford Apache Band to the late Chico O'Farrell. I knew about Chico O'Farrell. Even my parents even had recordings of Chico O'Farrell from the late 40s. They had recordings of, of Chico O'Farrell, the Afro-Cuban jazz suite on Verve at home. So I did know about Chico O'Farrell. He was one of the greatest angels and the most radiant uh, personalities and, and one of the most truly cherubic men I have ever known in my life. One of the most positive and and cherubic angels. I mean, when you use the word angel, I never heard him say a negative word about anything or anybody. And he was just a true creative force in, in music. And of course, a real innovator, you know. So uh, you're, even even in this time when the, when the record business is, uh, is, as they say, going to hell in a handbasket, you still want to be out there making some kind of documentation of, of the jazz artist's work and getting it out there. I think there are a lot more things to be done. I think there's a lot more work to be done streaming jazz music to the entire universe and making high quality, I wish we could be making uh, more high quality videos of jazz that could be shared you know, more readily all over the world. And I think that will come. Wynton Marsalis. Uh, Wynton Marsalis is, is also one of the premier creative forces in our music of the last 30 years. You know, a major, major uh, disseminator of the music, perpetuator of it. He's been a consistently positive force in the music since he emerged in the Art Blakey Band in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, it's a great honor and a privilege to work with Winton. And he's a demanding taskmaster, very challenging, a very restless kind of energy. But he's uh, also, you know, there wouldn't be a jazz at Lincoln Center. It would not have been created without him. His level of achievement and productivity in the jazz world at large is really not exceeded by anyone else in the music. I mean, he's been a really a, a standout and stand-up figure in the world of jazz since since he started in it. Because I, I presented him in concert you know, I believe in 1979 with uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Which leads us to Art Blakey. Art Blakey was it's simply one of my dearest friends and one of the greatest friends this music ever had. I mean, 
nobody ever swung any harder or played with any more passion than Art Blakey. Jazz stars came out of his band. Freddie Hubbard, Cedar Walton, you know, Wayne Shorter, jazz stars. He he not he propelled them. And Wynton Marsalis came out of Art Blakey's band and became the biggest jazz, most famous jazz artist to emerge in the last 30 years. So Art Blakey was a school of music. He was a university and college and middle school and high school all in one finishing school for great jazz artists who emerged from that band and, and became fundaments of what the, the jazz scene has been ever since Art Blakey was here. He was our father who Art Blakey. Um, last name I want to toss at you is Jack Whittemore. Tell us a little about who he was, how he influenced you. Okay, Jack Whittemore looked just like uh, Jimmy Cagney. He was a classic Irish, hard-drinking, and feisty uh, little guy, very stocky, strong, powerful, with a great New York voice, uh, who was an, an unparalleled, unexceeded artist manager and booking agent in the, in the history of jazz, almost totally incognito, almost totally unrecognized for the enormity of his contribution and essential uh, work. He was uh, really uh, a central part of the jazz music business from the 50s till when he passed away uh, in 1983. Jack Whittemore was an, an essential part of what jazz history and the jazz history that was made between the middle 50s and, and when he passed away. Who did he manage? He managed Miles Davis. He managed Stan Getz. He managed Ahmed Jamal. He managed Rasan Roland Kirk. He managed Sonny Stitt. He managed John Abercrombie. He managed Betty Carter for a while. Ironically, he passed away the same year the Keystone Corner closed. So that's a bygone era. We will not see their likes again, but it's a wonderful thing to have experienced that level of humanity in our business. Sounds like it's inspired you as well. Well, I, I, I try to keep it as part of my M.O. on a daily basis. So, as we say, bright moments. Or, or take care of the music, and the music will take care of you. Bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments. Bright moments. Todd Barkin you'll find doing the introductions and honoring the music almost any night at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola looking over Central Park in New York City. This is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center, which is produced at Murray Street by Alexa Lim, David Gorin, and me, Steve Rath. And this is the second of our two podcasts with Todd Barkin. You can hear more about the Keystone Corner in our first Todd Barkin Jazz Stories and see two extensive photo collections of the era at jalc.org slash podcasts or subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and hear Jazz at Lincoln Center music online anytime at jalc.org. Right moments, uh, right moments, uh, right moments, uh.